Hello, dear listeners, just in time for International Women's Day and in celebration of the 10 year anniversary of She Writes Press this year, I am honored to be teaching a class through Extended Sessions Five Things series. This is happening Sunday, March 6th at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern, and the class is called Five Things I've Learned About How Women Writers Thrive. If you're a woman writer, I hope you'll consider coming. We're going to be talking about the hard stuff as well as the inspiring stuff, how women sometimes get in our own way, how we can be perceived as the result of the culture and cultural conditioning, and also how awesome we are. All women-identified authors are welcome, authors and writers, and this is going to be a class that honors and challenges. So I would love for you to join me. You can find this class on the homepage of my5things.com, and it's $60, always recorded. Thank you so much, and on with the show. Hello, confessors, crafters, and navel gazers. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here as always with my co-host Grant Faulkner. Today, we have the great privilege of interviewing a guest pre-publication or on the eve of publication. So we get to contribute to the buzz that is building around Melissa Phoebos and her new book, Body Work. And I'm pleased we get to do that, Grant, because Melissa's new book is really incredible. It's a series of four essays, one part theory, one part craft, and one part memoir. And for me, reading this book, honestly, was like getting a backstage pass to my favorite band in the sense that Melissa so speaks my language. And the book is so smart, really easy to read and revealing at the same time, you know, so it's kind of full of everything and and it's supportive of memoirists and it's a craft book and a process book. So I'm excited that we get to do this interview. Um, you know, Melissa wrote a memoir called Whip Smart, and then it's followed by three collections of essays. Uh, so in, in short, I kind of got to geek out on a memoir craft book and that made me really happy. It's an interesting book that the book is three different things, theory, craft, and memoir. And it's described by your publisher as a guide to the writing life. And and I'm like you, one of those geeks who just can't get enough of these books. And perhaps that's why there are so many of them published. There are a lot of people like us who essentially like to live alongside their favorite writers and experience the ways they think about creativity and storytelling. And also to hear about their journeys, uh, about how they became a writer, which is always intriguing to me. And I've been thinking in anticipation of this interview of like different writing books that I've read and really enjoyed and reread in the past. I'm thinking like Annie Dillard's The Writing Life and Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast and Stephen King's On Writing and Alexander Chee's How to Write an Autobiographical Novel and then Amy Tan's The Opposite of Fate. I mean, I can list them Mm because I actually read two or three maybe a year. I don't know. It seems like I'm always reading a a book like this and I'm very thankful that they keep coming out in different forms, you know, like, like Melissa's. Absolutely. And and there are so many of them. I was actually thinking back to the one that probably was like the most pivotal for me that I read right before I wrote my first book. So I think it was like 2009 um, called Book Life, Strategies and Survival Tips for the 21st Century Writer by Jeff Vandermeer. And, you know, I read it at this time in my life that was very critical because, as I said, I was about to become an author for the first time. Uh, she Writes Press was founded shortly after that, and I published my book on my own press. And what it did for me was like talk about the writing life. And I think that's so essential to 
writers in general. Like if you're going to be a writer and you want to be doing your craft, it matters that you read your actual genre. But I also think it matters just as much that you read about the craft, especially from people who are experts and who have been teaching it for a long time. And I remember what I loved about book life and what made an impression on me was how Vandermeer differentiated between who you are, uh, like in your real life, and then the persona that you choose to put out into the world. Of course, for me, I don't think there's a very big gap between those two people. But I, I, it just gave me a lot of thought because I was like, oh, right. I mean, there are writers, you know, who only choose to show a portion of themselves or might choose to show, you know, a totally different version of themselves. So I don't know, I just have always stuck with so many of the craft elements that came out of that book. And it gave me pause, you know, certainly when I was reading Melissa's book and, you know, reading uh, Mary Carr's Art of Memoir a few years back, you know, just how few of these kinds of books there are for memoirists specifically. So I love that they're being written because I think it's also one of these things that is showing the legitimacy of the genre in a really, in a really good way. Um, so Grant, I was just thinking about the impact of these kind of books in general. And, um, you know, they certainly support us to think about things differently and, and even to show up in the world in a different way, which I guess is why they are so meaningful. Yeah, Brooke, I really want to read uh, the book you mentioned by Jeff Vandermeer, uh, just to keep this genre growing and supported. And I love these books. And I also love writing about the writing life myself. I've even published a book on writing. And uh, hey, folks, I've got a new <laughs> Substack <laughs> newsletter called Intimations, a writer's discourse. And uh, it's something I, I, you know, all joking aside, I very hesitantly entered this realm of the Substack newsletter. Uh, but it's actually the thing I look forward to most every week, I think, just because I love thinking about uh, the writing life. And uh, I think like the value of, of doing that for yourself, uh, even if you publish it or not, is just that it, it reflecting on the writer writing life with regularity just deepens the whole experience. And I think there's so many things to explore um, and especially the, explore those intersections between writing and life and how they kind of feed each other or are in conversation with each other. And that's why I like the books. It's not that they're uh, prescriptive in terms of the craft tools that they ha hand down, but just about that, that they have a spirit of exploration. I think that I like to constantly be thinking about. So I'm curious, Brooke, what unexpected things did you learn from reading Melissa's body work? Yeah, you know, it's going to appeal to any writer who's coming to the personal narrative or memoir with trauma, which is honestly a lot of writers who are drawn to the genre in the first place. I mean, one is that trauma is part of our lived experience, especially women, but obviously not specifically. I mean, marginalized people of all sorts and perhaps everyone. So it's not surprising so much as I was like nodding along, right? And and the way she writes about memoir writing is also very freeing. Uh, in my own book, Write on Sisters, I wrote about the experience of writing while female, you know, this notion that like, yes, in fact, women have different experiences and challenging experiences when they write their personal truths, you know, perhaps as compared to their male counterparts. Um, and I wrote about the double standards. And so the essay in um, body work that was called In Praise of Navel Gazing really resonated with me because I love a writer who will take something that people are criticized for and then turn it on its head. Um, and so this is just this little passage that I thought I would read um, where she, Melissa Phoebos, um, sets about to dismantle the stupidity of this accusation that memoirists are navel gazers. And so she says, 
Uh, I'm done agreeing when my peers spit on the idea of writing as transformation, as catharsis, as, dare I say it, therapy. Tell me, who is writing in their therapeutic diary and then dashing it off to be published? I don't know who these supposedly self-indulgent and extravagantly well-connected narcissists are, but I suspect that when people denigrate them in the abstract, they are picturing women. And I'm finishing, uh, sorry, I'm finished referring in a derogatory way to stories of body and sex and gender and violence and joy and childhood and family as navel gazing. So that's just a taste. I love it. Uh, you know, Melissa's sticking up for writers. She's sticking up for memoirists. She's sticking up for women. Uh, and there's just a lot of BS out in the writing world and so much negativity thrown at writers of personal narrative and memoir. And so I just see this book as a much needed salve and hopefully something that writers will pick up and feel better about, you know, and their choice to pursue this effort, which is already difficult without all that. Yeah, the the topics you listed in that quote, uh, definitely not navel gazing topics, <laughs> right. very important, very much beyond that. And, you know, it's interesting how we ask writers to be vulnerable and open, because that's what gives us connection and meaning to their work and to life. But then we chastise them for it often as well. And, and I was thinking uh, way back to F. Scott Fitzgerald's series of essays that made up the book, The Crack Up, which is like, I think they were written in the 30s, and the book was published in the 40s. And it was one of the first like confessional memoir style of books to be published. And everyone from John Dos Passos to Hemingway to his editor, Maxwell Perkins, derided him for opening up in such a way. The, the essays were originally written for Esquire. And Perkins said the essays were an indecent invasion of his own privacy. Hemingway said that Fitzgerald seemed to almost take a pride in his shamelessness of defeat and told him not to whine in public. And this obviously tracks to a kind of macho stoicism that that was a part of the culture and still is part of the culture. And I, I think of those words, shamelessness of defeat and whining in public. I think they're still with us in some way. I think I think they are equivalent to navel gazing in a way. But here's the thing, you know, res readers responded really favorably to the crack up and they still do because Fitzgerald's vulnerability was a, a mirror for them to see their own versions of their own crack ups. And I watched Melissa's TEDx talk and she says at the beginning that writing memoir allowed her to meet the gaze of her past self and then to forgive herself. And I, I thought that was just so powerful. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I work with a lot of memoirists who've internalized the very notion that the work that they're doing is selfish or small. I'm actually working with a memoirist this year who, who's been fighting me the whole way about whether her book is even a memoir, you know, and it is a memoir. Um, but it's, it's, to me, it speaks to her own strong judgment about the genre. And that's actually not a super uncommon thing for me to encounter with writers who are working on personal narrative, because I feel like they're absorbing this outside judgment and internalizing it and bringing it to their own work in a problematic way. And and yeah, it just is, they're worried about what other people are going to think, worried what it means to be writing a memoir. And that's why I see, um, you know, this question that I'm going to ask Melissa later about whether the genre does need to be defended, because it can be upset setting to people like us who are working in the field. And you're not only getting the outside judgment coming in, but you're actually getting it from the very people who are writing the work uh, themselves. So the genre does, in fact, need cheerleaders, but it also needs badasses, you know, people mm -hmm. like Melissa who are saying, like, look, I know you're hearing a lot of crap and you're probably piling it on internally, but you can set yourself free. Um, you know, you don't need to carry those burdens. So hopefully uh, these kinds of books and just talking about this makes the process more bearable. Yeah. 
You know, Brooke, I, I recently read uh, Maggie Nelson. I'm I'm sort of obsessed by her. This happens to me about once or twice a year. I'll get uh, really, really um, engrossed by an author and their work. And Maggie, especially Maggie Nelson's Bluettes um, and the Argonauts, which are, which are memoirs, although they they read as as poems, especially Bluettes, which is about grieving the loss of a lover. And I wanted to read this one passage because I think it really applies to our conversation. Nelson writes. Eventually, I confessed to a friend some details about my weeping, its intensity, its frequency. She says kindly that she thinks we sometimes weep in front of a mirror not to inflame self-pity, but because we want to feel witnessed in our despair. And then she asks, can a reflection be a witness? Can one pass oneself the sponge wet with vinegar from a reed? And what I like about this passage is just this idea of needing to be witnessed and that, that writing is a type of mirror. So it's, it's not whining in public or private, but it's a way to witness ourselves. And, and like you, I want to you know, stick up for this process of witnessing because it's pretty necessary to live a nourishing and meaningful life. You know, witnessing and being witnessed is a form of conversation. So with that, I can't wait to talk to Melissa more after this short break. Welcome back, everybody. We have Melissa Phoebos with us today, and she is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Whip Smart, and the essay collection, Abandon Me, which was a Lambda Literary Award finalist, a Publishing Triangle Award finalist, an Indie Next Pick, and was widely named Best Book of 2017. Her second essay collection, Girlhood, was a national bestseller. But today we're talking about your new book, Melissa, which is super exciting and not even out yet, called Bodywork. Welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd love to start by asking you, what inspired you to write a book about memoir and personal narrative? Because you've you've written a memoir and two books of essays. So why was this the next natural choice? Well, you know, I never actually sat down and thought, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about personal writing. I'm going to write a book about it. Um, It was more that, you know, I've been writing and publishing memoir and personal nonfiction for more than 15 years, going on 20 years. And I've been teaching it for just as long. Um, And so this sort of uh, conversation between my experience as someone, as as not just someone, but as a very specific person, as like a queer female person writing about subjects that are provocative and very personal, combined with working with students who are writing from really intimate experiences, traumatic experiences, um, stigmatized experiences, the sort of conversation between those observations of mine of both of those areas led to some really strong arguments that I felt like I was constantly making sort of among other writers on my own behalf and most of all to my students. And at a certain point, at at a couple of certain points, I decided to compile sort of those arguments and ideas and observations that I gleaned over those 15 or 17 years and put them into a single essay. And I did that with two of the essays or two of the chapters in this book. And when I published one of them, an editor came to me and said, hey, would you write a book? And I was like, absolutely. I have plenty more where that came from. (laughs) Um, And so I wrote the second half of the book. and, And that's really kind of the genesis 
Well, Melissa, um, I really loved the parts of your book that were about confession. You know, sometimes we, we, confession is a running theme of this show. I was just thinking instead of right-minded, we could have called it confession-minded. Um, <laughs> That's my kind of podcast. <laughs> yeah. And so we talk a lot about the art of confession, so to speak, but also the judgment level that writers who write confessionally. Mm-hmm. And you have an essay in your new book called The Return, The Art of Confession. And I thought it was particularly interesting that you honed in on secrecy, you know, the secrecy that you longed as a kid to confess your secrets. And then later in the essay, you write that secretive people are often diarists. And as one who's kept a diary since I was seven years old, this is worth pondering. (laughs) Can you say more about this connection between having special secrets and confession as you've experienced it or witnessed it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I've encountered one of one of those really common predictable experiences of publishing personal writing is that people misjudge you. And I'll speak, try to speak in the first person. I'm trying to be aware when I slip into the second person and give myself a little emotional distance. Um, <laughs> when, when I've published really personal work, um, I find that students, readers, anyone who hasn't also done so generally assumes that I am someone who's really comfortable being seen and that I'm I'm like really brave and that I'm kind of an oversharer maybe. I'm like into TMI. <laughs> and actually my both my assessment of myself and of like all of the memoirists I know, or almost all of them, or even the people with a tendency to want to write as, as, as you did, our personal thoughts and feelings and secrets in our diaries or wherever, is that we are intensely private people. We are terrified of being perceived by others. And we tend to be secret keepers, right? We're very protective, you know? And so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's an early foreshadowing of someone's character that they might be interested in memoir or that memoir might be a rewarding experience for them. If there's someone who kept a diary early, if there's someone who considers themselves secretive and there's a lot of like, you know, in, in sort of every field um, from like sociology to spiritual writing to psychology that, that talks about secrecy and sort of the dynamics of it. And, you know, in my experience, when I don't, talk about something, it's usually because I'm afraid of what other people are going to think or that I've been sent a very particular message about it being unacceptable or impolite or unspeakable or offensive, right? And so that's like the starting point. It has plenty of shame already sometimes, you know? And my experience of keeping secrets is that that shame or that initial sort of narrative around it tends to accumulate and solidify, right? And then the sort of like follow-up response to that is that I start to develop and nurture this like very powerful desire to air that thing because I want to be freed from all of that sort of coagulated shame and fear around it, right? And memoir writing is a way like diary writing, articulating and speaking our secrets without being seen, or there's at least a delay, right? You get to write it. And then like two years pass in which you're only dealing with one editor and then everyone else reads it, but you don't have to be there when they see you. So it's kind (laughs) of, it's the perfect solution in many ways for, for secret keepers. That's so funny. And so true. I appreciate you talking about that cycle also. You know, it's like the the, the desire to get it out on the page is almost like compulsive for some memoirists, mm-hmm. but then it really is 
setting it free. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have seen that over and over with my own students. And, you know, a few years ago, I interviewed Mary Carr and congratulations on the blurb from Mary. She is so wonderful. Oh, thank you. She's been such a good friend and supporter to me. I love that. And, you know, one of the questions I asked her, I want to turn to you also, um, which was I asked her if she thought memoir needed to be defended. And so I'm curious if you think it does. No, I don't think it does. I mean, I I find myself defending it because I'm annoyed by the misconceptions. And obviously, I've spent some time sort of articulating my views on memoir. Um, But in the larger sense, like more broadly construed, I don't think memoir needs my defense because people respond to it, right? Like the the rooms in which memoir is being sort of like denigrated and dismissed are actually pretty small rooms, mostly of writers themselves, you know, and, um, and maybe academics, you know, uh, maybe some critics, certainly critics. Um, but for the most part, the power of memoir is abundantly evident. Like they don't need my little self-righteous voice piping in to protect memoirs. You know, like people are buying them, people are reading them, people are writing them because the value and like effect of them on people and their lives and their relationships and their own experience is, it's irrefutable. So, so I actually don't think it needs me to defend it, though I realize the irony of me saying that as we're here talking about my sort of manifesto about personal writing. Yeah, it's the difference, though, between, I think, a meta level of, of defense that is like the genre is out there and tons of people are writing it. And then you, I think, are responding to sort of individual accusations, which I, I right. so appreciate, you know, because it, it's a... a it, it was very heartwarming for me. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like I agree yeah. with that. And sometimes we just need <laughs> to be seen, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it really also comes from like, the book is not for people who are denigrating memoir. It's not for the people who aren't interested in memoir. Like I could give a shit, you know, but it is for my students. It's for the people who really want to write it, who love it, who have sort of someone else's voice like whispering in their head, who have internalized the voices of people who want to argue with it. It's just for them. It's like, I'm just going to reiterate the things that they already know so that they can give themselves permission to do the thing that they already want to do. Like that's the whole mission of this book. That's great, Melissa. And I want to um, talk about that mission part, I think. Um, I want to ask you about your own writing journey. And just to give our listeners some context, you left home at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. And in your memoir, Whip Smart, you tell the story of being a professional dominatrix. And you did that while you went to school. And then you eventually went to Sarah Lawrence to get your MFA. And um, you're known for your incredible essays. And you've written all over the place, including now three collections of essays. And as an essay writer myself, I'm always so curious about people who stay with essay and especially who publish essay collections. So with that context for our listeners, can you tell us more about when you started writing and what draws you to the essay as a form? Sure. Um, I started writing when you did, uh, when I was about seven, I think I like, you know, I was already an obsessive reader, but, um, I, I have kept journals and been writing, you know, in forms that I was able to name, like poetry and stories, um, as far back as my memory goes. Um, and I think I started thinking of myself as a writer 
probably by the time I was like 10 or something, by the time we did any creative writing exercise in class and other people were like, you're good at this, Hmm. (laughs) which was like pretty early. Uh, I was like, excellent, because this is the only thing I can imagine staying interested in for the rest of my life. And as soon as I got sort of even the crudest idea of sort of like how our culture understands writers and artists, like the identity of a writer or an artist, which is to say it could be a person who was like not really approved of in society in any other way, but you could be like passionate and have lots of feelings and express them and be like uh, intellectual and argumentative and sexual and possibly do lots of drugs and alcohol and uh, have kind of like a torrid love. I was like, this is for me. I am qualified for this. (laughs) And so that larger idea of like being a writer and this kind of like fantasy of like who, who that might be in, in society as I knew it um, started really, really early, but I didn't have a conception of the essay as a form or really even personal nonfiction until college at least like truly until like graduate school and when I was a kid I just and and a young adult I just read everything pretty indiscriminately like I read I I I didn't realize that some of the books I loved as a younger person were memoir and not novels until later because I didn't care until then (laughs) I just like didn't which is like maybe the best argument for that like never-ending argument about like emotional truth versus facts you know um i was just like i don't care this moved me this felt important this spoke to something um that i wanted clarity on so um it wasn't until i was in my mfa program that i ever was like i'm going to write something nonfiction. and i think at that point i'd been influenced enough i'd been in school for writing for like four years previous and i was scared of writing nonfiction because i i I understood it to be mostly journalism or to be memoirs that people in my like MFA world and sort of academic world kind of look down their noses at. And so I was like, this seems to be either like an embarrassing route or one in which I am deeply unqualified because I don't read the paper cover to cover every day. And I only read the reviews and the comics and the New Yorker. So I can't be a nonfiction (laughs) writer. And then I just took a class, an elective undergrad class, because I was so intimidated. And we just like moved our way through the forums. And it was in that class that I started writing my first book, which was a memoir. Um, And after I started working on the memoir, I got interested in other forms of nonfiction. And And I was trying to teach myself how to write a memoir. And so I wrote a bunch of short essays. And I think looking back with my understanding now of the essay, you know, I teach in a graduate program now that is like completely focused on the essay. So we do have a lot of conversations about the form. Looking back, I wish in some ways that someone had introduced me to it specifically earlier because it is so compatible with me and what I want to do, which is take my very intimate secret, (laughs) often secret experiences and apply to them intellectual questions and sort of use the clay of experience to um, interact with ideas and questions and mostly unanswerable things um, to try to get to a different kind of understanding, to a more generous, capacious, refined understanding of like how to be in the world, right? And, And that's about as concise um, a definition of the essay as I can give you, is that sort of massaging of 
narrative and experience and whether one's own or someone else's with like big questions, you know, to address like what the hell we're doing. That's a great image. I love it too. But I, and I was going to say that I agree with you 100%. And I think the same applies to memoir, maybe just through a sustained, I mean, the best memoirs anyway, right? Just through a sustained story, because I do like so much when memoirists attempt to tackle those broader intellectual questions. I guess the the deal is that maybe it's more expected in essay, or there's just that smaller container. Mm-hmm. Just a thought for all the memoirists out there to also be rigorous. <laughs> I was talking to a student just yesterday who was like, how do you write a book? How do you write more than 10 pages? And I was like, just keep breaking it down until it feels manageable, until the doorway feels, um, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, but <laughs> until the bar feels low enough for you to jump over it and just like start with a paragraph, move it up to an essay. Most memoirs started with an essay, you know? Right. There you go. It's easy to be rigorous when you only have to do it for a hundred words, you know, start there. <laughs> totally. Love that. Well, I want to talk to you about your mom, who's a therapist. Mine is too. So, ah, perfect, <laughs> so perfect. We are a category of our own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so true. So, um, you know, when you grew up in a very loving family, you tell this story in your TEDx talk, uh, and uh, also about telling your mom that you've written this book, your memoir, which is about being a dominatrix, so hardly an easy conversation to have, and, and previous traumas, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. so you're talking about the fact that you can't even say these things out loud, and yet you're about to publish the book for the world to see. And as I was listening to that talk, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is like every memoirist I've ever worked with, right? Mm -hmm. Like people are so terrified to get past what other people will think of them. And I've never really seen anyone address this in the way that you have in this context of a particularly loving relationship with a parent or parents. Mm -hmm. So I would love for you to talk about that experience a bit and what advice you have for writers who are out there who really do feel like they can't write or publish while certain loved ones are still alive because Mm -hmm. it's a more caring relationship. Like I almost think it's easier. I hate to say this and maybe I'm wrong, but like if you have an estranged relationship, you can be like, well, I don't care. Right. Oh yeah. So your thoughts. Yeah, I think you'll hear that from from some writers. Like, I know a lot of people who are sort of grateful that their families are not interested in their work or that they don't have to hear their opinions, even if they are. And and it feels important to say sort of like first off in answer to that question, sometimes it isn't safe for a relationship until the person is gone. That's actually true. You know, it's not... I am not sort of of the mind that like holding every relationship to the fire of a memoirist's honesty is going to make it stronger and more resilient. Like that's just not true for all relationships, right? So, you know, every writer needs to like make a careful loving assessment of the relationships they value most and the work that's most important to them and think about how those things are going to interact because writing a memoir does not necessitate that you publish it. it does not necessitate that you publish every part of it you know like there are options um that said uh for me you know um i was also really scared about it and i made some mistakes early on um in the ways that i that i didn't sort of um mediate the experience for the people i love by showing them the work first or having a conversation with them about it. And since then, I have made a good practice of that, you know, and and I think it's important to say, like, 
if I don't have a relationship with someone, maybe I'll send it to them. Maybe I won't. You know, mostly I try really hard not to include things that are going to be hurtful to people that are not absolutely necessary to the work I'm making and in which I am not scrutinizing myself more rigorously than anyone else who appears in the work. Like that is the first rule, you know, or the first two rules. But I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have relationships, multiple relationships in my life, but particularly that with my mother, which are truly intimate in the sense that I understand true intimacy, which is that there is room in the relationship for both people to grow and to change. And there's room for conflict and to resolve it. And that both people are willing to show up for that process. Right. And I think that for me, just knowing that there was going to be a process and that we were going to continue to love each other through it, whatever her reaction was, made it really safe for me to both be incredibly honest in my work and to bring it to her and say, Hey, I want to show up for this conversation where I hear how this feels to you, you know, and those conversations are not always lighthearted. <laughs> you know? Like I have had some really intense conversations that I would not have otherwise had because even in that intimate relationship, like there are plenty of things that she doesn't need to know or that I'm not brave enough to broach necessarily, but in my work I am because I do it alone. And so she has gotten to know me in ways that she didn't before through my work. And and that's true of lots of relationships. It's true of my relationship with my wife, with my brother, with my dad, and with, with many close friends of mine, you know, but it, it, it is a process I have learned to handle with great care, right? I do not censor my work or show it to people when it's in progress. Like I'm very protective of my work. And then when I'm done, I'm very protective of my relationships and I move with great care negotiating those. And I think that people are, and by people, I mean writers, <laughs> are desperate for a single rule of thumb by which we can measure what to do in all of these situations. Like, you know, Annie Lamont has a very famous quote that goes something to the effect of like, if people wanted to come off better in your work, they should have acted better. And that's wonderful and hilarious. And I love it. And I have clung to it at times. And it's also like, of no use to me in negotiating the relationships where people didn't act terribly. And I love them deeply. Like, it's just not that simple. I love how you just flipped that famous quote on its head. <laughs> um, not serious. That was really, really good. And I liked how you also flipped uh, uh, some conventional wisdom um, in your book about how people need to have sufficient distance from an experience in order to write a personal narrative. And I often have said that as well. Mm -hmm. You reframe that to saying you need a change of heart, which I thought was really interesting. And I was wondering if you, if you could speak a little bit more to that. Mm, absolutely. Um this is one of those things that I have spent so much time talking about because the the contradictory argument is made so frequently and so taken for granted, right? And I think that's because it does make intuitive sense, right? If you're writing something, if you're writing in a genre like memoir, where the sort of hallmark quality of that genre is insight and reflection, right? And, and we get insight and reflection looking back at something and and we generally assume that like the farther away you are from an experience the more perspective you have on it and that is true in a baseline kind of way um but when you're writing a memoir it's not only sort of like breadth of perspective that you're looking for right and so for me um 
one thing to consider is like, do you have an amazing memory? I do not have an amazing memory. And so as a memoirist, I am constantly in a race with time. And for me to have the immediacy that draws readers into my work to have like those very specific true details it's way better for me to be writing as close as possible to an event. I also take lots of notes all the time whenever anything important or even not important is happening in my life so that I have those archives. But I do think, you know, we are not only drawing upon the wisdom of the intervening years between the action of our story and the writing of the book. We are harvesting wisdom and images and um, material from everything right? From the whole of our lives, from other things we're reading, um, from the conversations we have while we're writing a book. And so um, I have a much more sort of capacious idea of um, where we draw wisdom from. And so, you know, there are just, it's just going to be different. Whatever point in time that you're writing your story from, it's going to be different. And I'll use one example. Um, just to finish this long answer. My second book is about a really addictive, uh, toxic, um, enthralling relationship. And I wrote the book while I was in the relationship. I wrote a lot of it while I was in it. Then I sort of stopped writing the book, ended the relationship, and then finished the book and rewrote it immediately afterwards. And there is a specificity and an immediacy to that book that I think is is what it is. It is the it is the best part of it. Um, and it's really just fundamental to what kind of art it is, right? And so the wisdom is in the lyricism and the images and it's 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 drawing from different places. And the the insight comes from looking from the point of that relationship back into childhood, right? So it's a different temporal frame. And I think that that gets overlooked when people are talking about how far away from an experience you need to be. Like we all have wisdom at every stage in our lives, you know? Yeah, so much so. And actually it's a perfect segue to my final question. I wanted to talk about craft a little bit. I mean, obviously you teach memoir and this particular thing of what did you know when is mm, such a mm -hmm. big deal for memoirists, right? So if they're writing at a place of a young version of themselves, for instance, and there is some kind of insight that they maybe didn't have until 10 years later, mm -hmm. I'm curious if you teach your students to allow for some of that all knowing or later knowing to infuse those scenes or if you teach another way of doing that because it's just feels like such a struggle people you know deal with in their narratives yeah yeah my belief and observation is that it's inevitable that the present day self is going to be that is the that is the conduit right so there's no way that our biases and perceptions and resentments and wisdom are not going to um be completely infused into any telling um of our past right so the way that i teach is just about how do we be as awake as possible to the story we are telling right um and this is where it becomes sort of where the process of being a person who is awake to ourselves and our own lives, aka sort of personal transformation, is inextricable from good craft, right? Because the thing we want from memoir necessitates that we be 
that we awaken inside of ourselves, right? And so what that looks like in sort of a more nuts and bolts way is like, um, you know, the first draft, I don't want people to be like fully awake the first draft. We wouldn't get through the first sentence because they would be so so frozen <laughs> by self-awareness or like self-scrutiny, right? It's just to sort of write it the way we write it, you know, to write it the way that feels most possible. And then to go back and think, okay, what is this? Is this the story? that I wish for? Is this a story of what happened? Is this a story of my past self? Is this an argument I'm making for my own heroism? Like what's going on here? What are the biases here? Let's read it critically the way that we would someone else's text, you know, Um, which is why I think workshop is useful because we're basically just practicing for the ultimate act of reading our own work with the critical eye. So in short, that's, that's basically that's basically how I think of it. We're going to be involved in every possible way. It's just a matter of how many conscious choices we can make. And I think for me, in most cases, like good art of all varieties is a reflection of intention and choice. Perfect ending. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, thank you so much, Melissa. Oh, thank you so much. This has been such a delight. I'm so grateful to you for having me. We will be right back with today's book trend. Grant, I thought it would be good to talk a moment this week in the book trend about this disturbing trend of the intense and escalating efforts to ban books. Uh, You know, it really should scare everyone, um, especially because those behind the mounting efforts are actually using lawsuits. And so we're seeing lawyers actually considering cases in which they would sue libraries and their employees for stalking books with titles like sex is a funny word or this book is gay. It's so disturbing. And in moments like this, I, I, I feel naive because I, I often think we've evolved past stuff like this. But I'm afraid book banning and even book burning is a human trait that's never going to go away. Uh, we've reached just obviously a whole new level uh, with all this recently as our culture wars heat up and as our conversations about free speech and social justice deepen. Uh, those conversations are actually becoming more dangerous because what we're seeing now is reminiscent of some of the, the hardcore extremist politicians who are suggesting their opponents go to jail for things that should not be prosecutable. Yeah, and it's all coming to a head in recent weeks because there was a county board of education in Tennessee that voted to remove Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel Mouse uh, from an eighth grade module on the Holocaust. And they cited nudity and curse words. But the problem is, uh, you know, what I was saying earlier, that it's these these things are being driven by legislation, you know, and that politicians are aligning with one side or another. And um, that's just a disturbing trend. Yeah, Mouse was banned just before Holocaust Remembrance Day, of all things, uh, which I, I don't think was a coincidence. I think a book like Mouse is, you know, what I realize is that it's more important than ever because we need stories to truly remember things. It's like it's like the show versus tell principle we talked about in our recent episode with Ashley Ford. We understand things better the closer we get to the story, the more we're in the drama. So a book like Mouse helps us imagine the unimaginable, which the Holocaust was, and it takes us beyond historical dates and historical explanations. So one thing that stands out to me about this whole story is just how central books are to our cultural and political discourse, actually. You know, they bring us together, but also, unfortunately, they're also sometimes used as a tool to tear us apart. 
Yeah, isn't that true? Well, and on the positive side, there are many, many efforts to combat this rising tide. And so uh, you can certainly go to the show notes because I do want to show you this awesome video that we found. It was put out last month on Instagram on the handle Always Black, which is a Random House initiative. Very impressive. Um, I loved it. So check out the show notes and you get to kind of watch a fun and powerful rap compilation that's a counterattack against book banning. Yeah, this is a moment also just a good reminder for myself to pinch myself to be more vigilant and proactive. And and you can report efforts to ban books to the American Library Association. You can join the Authors Guild, which has a strong advocacy program, including a letter writing campaign. And they're also encouraging, you know, people to write op-eds. So we have to keep speaking up. It's hard to be loud when you're on the defense, but the alternative is censoring of books we care about. Yeah, and I also want to remind people to check out bandbooksweek.org. You can sign up for their newsletter because every little action helps. That's right, Brooke. Every little action helps. And I encourage our listeners to take the little action of inviting your friends to listen to Right Minded. We're here every week for you. So we will be back next week with an exciting episode about writing. Bye-bye.